Hello, listeners. This is the Eclipse Viewer Podcast, Episode 48, Kenji Mizuguchi's Fallen Women, Part 2. My name is David Blakesley, and uh, we're happy to have back with us once again Trevor Barrett. Hello, Trevor. Hello, <laughs> and thank you and Scott for covering for me last uh, in the last episode. That's the first one I've missed since since we started this together, and it was hard to miss. But I certainly didn't didn't feel like I you know that people needed to miss me. I think it went really well, so it was nice to listen to and nice to be back, especially to talk to you two about the rest of the set. Oh, very good. Yeah, and I definitely appreciated Scott's willingness to go on with the show you know sometimes uh, the podcasting business calls for us to just to kind of pick up the pieces and move ahead because uh life happens and we have to make those last minute adjustments so scott good to have you back with us as well well it's all part of my plan to just generally replace trevor in all, all aspects <laughs> of life so my takeover has begun trevor you on the lookout for the rest um yeah. is that uh is that a threat? Is something about to happen to it's, me? It's not uh, a threat. You know, it's just a statement of fact, you know. And so I just Because if you want this, I, and it, it doesn't, we don't need to get violent, I will <laughs> I will hear terms. <laughs> that's when the Scott lawyer speaking law out. School, I think that's yes. when you guys start getting worried. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, for uh, people just tuning in to this episode, yes, we are covering uh, Kenji Mizuguchi's Fallen Women. This is the second of a two-part uh, coverage of that uh, Set. This is Eclipse Series uh, 13. It was released back in 2008, actually. Got in that early run of the Eclipse uh, series when they were popping them out every couple months with a fresh new set. And uh, the Mizuguchi films were definitely uh, well received and uh, much appreciated uh, back in those glory years of the Eclipse series. Uh, four films filmed over the uh, span of uh, two decades, really. Uh, we talked about. Uh, Osaka Elegy and Sisters of the Geon last week in our last episode, which just coincidentally posted this morning over on Criterion Cast. Uh, we're recording on Wednesday, October 5th. Uh, kind of an unusual time for us, but we uh, just kind of want to make up for some lost time. We kind of had the Mizuguchi series set up as a September podcast, uh, kind of coinciding with the release of the story of The Last Chrysanthemum, which Scott and I were joined by Ryan Gallagher last week to discuss that as a standalone main episode for Criterion Cast. So we're kind of continuing on with our Mizuguchi theme, even here in these uh, early days of October. And uh, we will uh, kind of pick up the pieces where we left off last week. The Sisters of the Gion and Osaka Elegy, two films shot in 1936. Uh, and now we are jumping ahead uh, back to the post-war era of Japan in 1948. This was uh, kind of a pretty critical time for Japan. In Japanese society, uh, the war has taken its toll, and we definitely see that in the uh, in the early stages of this film. So, uh, yeah, who'd like to kind of talk about? Well, actually, before we get into that, I'm going to backpedal just a little bit here. And Trevor, you know, we did have to you know, miss you last week. I just wanted to give you a chance to kind of uh, maybe uh, you know fill in a little bit of the gaps that maybe Scott and I missed anything, or if you had any impressions of those earlier two films uh, since you weren't able to join us last week. Well, there there were so many gaps. I just I couldn't believe it. I when I was listening to the episode, I just thought, "Come on, guys!" Um, <laughs> I'm just teasing, by the way. Um, I thought you guys did an excellent job, so I didn't have any gaps, things like that, that I needed to uh, um, to jump in and cover. Um, but I'll just quickly kind of give my my general sense, which might be a good uh, way of getting us over to the women of the night. Um, I really liked Osaka Elegy and Sisters of the Gion. Um, you know, both, as, as you guys talked about, early films in his career. Um, well, er, you know, kind of early films of his uh, really kind of uh, when his career started to take off. And then these later two that we'll talk about today were, were quite a bit later, but kind of carry on with a similar theme of The Fallen Women. And I have to say, I really preferred the earlier two. I, I really thought Osaka Elegy and Sisters of the Gion were, were excellent films. With uh, with great stories, um, interesting themes, interesting history. Whereas uh, Women of the Night and Street of Shame, I, I enjoyed them, but I think I enjoyed them more just to see how Mizuguchi was responding to the historical circumstances around him 
rather than enjoy them as films in and of their, you know, for their own merit, uh, kind of taken, um, divorced from all of the historical context that we'll get into of post-World War II and um, the end of Mizuguchi's own life and the uh, outlying of prostitution, you know, this, this really old industry. And... I liked them for those reasons that they tied into the to, to the actual events going on around the film, and I liked the films okay, but I didn't think they were nearly as as compelling in, as films in their own right as Osaka Elegy and Sisters of the Geon. Uh, I thought that those two were were pretty phenomenal, really compelling. And I, I don't know, am I am I alone in this? Um, I I would have had all kinds of good things to say about last week's films, and this week I certainly have some some things that I really appreciated, but. Um, you know, I kind of feel like I, I might be throwing a, a wet blanket on a, what might have been a different kind of conversation had I had to miss tonight too. <laughs> no, oh, I actually, Scott, you want to win? yeah, I actually tend to agree with you. Uh, not that I thought that Osaka Elegy and Sister Joan were exemplary, especially in the context of Mizuguchi's entire career. I think I sort of side with the majority in thinking kind of the work he did in the early fifties was kind of the height of his career. Maybe story of the last chrysanthemums accepted. Uh, but sister, where are we at? Women of the Night and uh, Street of Shame. I think they're films that need to be made. You know, especially in Women of the Night, you can feel a real sense of urgency in what Mizuguchi is doing. And he, as uh, Michael Kresge talks, Kresge, what's his name again? Kresge uh, talks about in the essay accompanying the clip set. Uh, Mizuguchi referred to the film as uh, bar- barbarous later in life, and it certainly has kind of a barbaric quality. And it's very very angry, and I think rightfully so. I think the passion Mizuguchi shows in that film is exactly what the subject in the time called for, and it's very striking to see that from a director who, you know, despite the numerous tragedies he uh, told on screen, never really had that kind of rage before that I've seen in any other films. There's kind of an acceptance of the inevitability of tragedy that uh, accompanies a lot of his films. But Women of the Night is a very angry film, and Street of Shame is just a uh, very, uh, in its own way, kind of accepting, but accepting of a reality that he doesn't view as necessarily tragic. You know, he kind of views prostitution rather ambivalently, recognizing that it's kind of the best job these women can get, and uh, in some cases the only job they can get, and it's necessary to their very survival. So in spite of the fact that it comes with innumerable... uh, tragedies in their own lives you know there's a sense that their lives might be worse without it and and it too you know coming kind of being a viewpoint into the world of prostitution right before it was to be outlawed in japan it was also a film that i think needed to be made uh in more ways than one because it did lead the some say directly to the outlawing of prostitution um but just getting that window into the last days of a dying industry is i think immensely valuable and i I think it's a, a fine film overall but yeah, on the whole, I, I think I would agree that these are not uh, kind of the upper tier of Mizuguchi and not even as good as what I kind of considered the middle tier with uh, Osaka Elegy and Sisters of Gion. Well, that's interesting because I haven't really evaluated these films in terms of better or best. I mean, you, you definitely see uh, development as a filmmaker in the in the technical side, uh, you know, as rugged and raw as Women of the Night is, it's 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 still more of a, a polished film a production in terms of just the technical aspects, uh, in my opinion. And and uh, The Street of Shame certainly has, you know, a much cleaner presentation. And we'll get into both of those as well. But, you know, I, I just do find them very reflective and very fascinating of their times. And I think as I'm trying to sort out what would be the, the difference, what's happened with Mizuguchi, uh, maybe he's become a little bit self-important in these later films. I mean, we, we talked a little bit about how Osaka Elegy and Sisters of the Gion were you know, kind of uh, Mizuguchi's breakout from the formulaic, you know, uh, sort of popular entertainment that he'd been uh, creating, presumably, up until that point in his career. And again, we emphasized how many films, you know, 50-plus he had made uh, by the time of uh, Osaka Elegy and Sisters of the Gion. But by this point, by 1948 even... Um, Mizuguchi was is a you know a, a highly respected master of Japanese cinema, not only uh, in terms of artistic credibility, but also as a um, kind of as a, as a, as a uh, leader of the Japanese film industry. I think he wasn't he like the head of the 
uh, kind of a, a union or, or some kind of a you know organizational effort. So he was very active in the business side of things as well. And maybe because of that, these two films do come across as you know self-consciously important statement films uh, reflecting crucial issues in society but maybe with a little bit of a, a more ponderous feel to them. I don't know, maybe that's what you were reacting to, Trevor. Uh, I don't know, does that sort of seem on the mark or not? That could be what I, what I, what I mean by it. Um, I just felt like the stories themselves were a little bit looser and a little bit less... Um, it's not that they weren't they weren't powerful, because they certainly were. I think Women of the Night, with all that anger Scott um, brought up, is, is definitely powerful. Um, but, uh, well, maybe when we get into it, I, I'll be able to express a little bit better why it just didn't quite do it for me. Um, Street of Shame, I certainly uh, thought it was very nice and polished. But again, I, I just I think with both of these, I so much of my enjoyment of them and I did enjoy them just came from the historical context and from his career. So I do think that they're essential. I think that they're important, as Scott was saying. I think they needed to be made as well. Um, but that could be somewhat to the detriment of the films themselves as far as, you know, standing up out and above where you can get them out of the context of the director's oeuvre or of the um, of the his world history that's going on or J Japanese history, which I think we can do with something like Sancho the Bailiff or Getsu or The Life of Oharu. I think all of those those three films, I think that you don't really need – it certainly helps to know some context, but I also think that they really stand out um, as just singular works that kind of um, are able to transcend the particulars of their time and place. And and I don't want to be too negative here because, uh, you know, Scott has a very good point that they, they did need to be made just because something doesn't transcend its time or place. And certainly it, when that's just my perspective, um, doesn't mean it's not important and doesn't mean that it, it doesn't have a lot of value even for us today. I just didn't find them quite as as compelling as I, as I'd hoped. And, and I think that that's part of it. You know, David, you mentioned you didn't look at them as better or best. Um, I wonder if that is somewhat also reflective of the way that we probably viewed these things for the first time. Whereas I started with Osaka Elegy and basically worked my way through the set in a rather short period of time, um, with expectations building and, and kind of going, um, different ways and particularly knowing that these were later works, um, I wonder if that was different from yours, where I think that you didn't even watch them in order and watched them over a larger period of time. If I, at least, if I go on the dates of your journey through the Eclipse series, and I, I yeah, wonder if yeah. that may have may that may be a really nice way of going through them because it does separate them a little bit and and doesn't lead to so much comparison, which. You know, uh, I jumped right into <laughs> the beginning sure. of this episode. The f my first thought is, well, these weren't as good as the last two, um, and so at least you know that from my from my limited perspective there. Um, but I don't want to be too negative. I wanted more to use that as a springboard to, to, you know, I did really like Osaka Elegy and Sisters of the Geon, and I liked them uh, for their pre-war context. I liked. I liked. I just really like that period of Japanese film, in, in particular, as I've gotten to know it through the Eclipse series, and uh, these later two um, are still. I think we're going to have a lot of really interesting things to talk about with them today, even if for me the stories themselves didn't quite come off as nicely polished and well thought out, and they certainly have their issues. Um, as well, even just when we talk about their historical context and issues that they, you know, they have their own baggage that um, is certainly understandable and worth uh, talking about and still worth lauding Mizuguchi for, for including them. But I think that they're, uh, you know, they, they have their problems <laughs> in their worldviews as, as many works of art do. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get to it. I, I will say about my journey through the Eclipse series, that was one of the things I did enjoy about it is kind of taking the films out of the box and and trying to approach each each disc uh, as a title on its own terms. You know, uh, with a few exceptions, I did I did review sets as a whole on on a few occasions, but uh, yeah, with this particular set, you're right. I, I can't even remember which order I watched them in. But uh, one of the things I do appreciate about these two later films is that they are such a, a stark contrast uh, uh, from the, 
you know, incredibly masterful films that we've we've mentioned: Ugetsu, Sancho, Life of a Haru, uh, which are in their own ways kind of like these glittering jewel boxes of films because they are so exotic and mythic and timeless uh, i love the the raw immediate context of these two films and uh, and just sort of seeing them happen i mean i i do enjoy the pre-war japanese cinema but i really do have a, a great fondness for the post-war japanese cinema as well of the 40s and 50s and so we've got two pretty vintage slices of of uh time and circumstance in japan in these two films with a with a you know not an enormous but a significant span of time uh, between the two of them so uh, maybe just to lead in let's talk, talk a little bit about mizuguchi so uh, in the 1940s during the war years you know, he was doing films like the 47 ronin part one and two uh, a film that was basically you know uh, scripted and employed for almost propaganda purposes, although it's quite an impressive film. Uh, but after the war years, uh, Mizuguchi, you know, took advantage of a, you know, growing expanse of, of freedom. And, uh, you know, in in that immediate post-war context is, is uh, where we get Women of the Night, a 1948 film. So at this point, the war's a few years past, uh, but you can see from the opening scenes uh, the cities, uh, in particular, the urban landscapes are still in a shambles. The economy is absolutely strapped. Of course, there is no reference at all to the American occupation that was, uh, you know, still a very heavy hand upon the Japanese people at this time, and that was because uh, American occupation censorship was was very strong. You could not be seen as making any kind of a a statement uh, that was either resentful towards the American authorities or seen as somehow drawing Japan back into its so-called feudal past. Uh, so, you know, there was a, a kind of a tight line that, that Mizuguchi still had to tread, but I think he, he took some pretty significant risks in this movie. Uh, there is a little bit of a moralistic tone, uh, and uh, there is definitely some pretty intense and, you know, in some ways unprecedented violence, especially towards those culminating scenes. But... Uh, yeah, anybody want to kind of give a stab at kind of just a summary of, of the film or, or how we, how to get into it there? Um, I don't mind if, if that's okay, yeah. Scott. Take it away. Yeah. Uh, very okay. I'm terrible at summaries. <laughs> yeah, me too. That's why I'm going to try and get it over with before that I think more difficult to summarize Street of Shame. Um, I, I, uh, so Women of the Night, as David uh, saying, um, came out in 1948, and it begins – with a, a, a large cityscape, you know, he's, he's, uh, Mizuguchi's camera is panning across Osaka, and you see a bunch of things in shambles. It's it's just crowded. It looks, you know, uh, like an ant farm. And then he zooms in on one of these uh, individuals walking through the streets. It's actually, I think, a pretty nice little uh, opening and a good uh, camera technique. And can, I, can I just needs... jump in a real quick second there? Yeah. I, I really enjoy it, almost the roughness of the film stock. I mean, this is a pretty That's battered true. film. Yeah. It, this is one of those times where uh, kind of degraded film quality almost enhances the experience because you really feel like, you know, the rubble is still steaming and, and this it's like a film canister that's been kind of pulled out of a crater somewhere uh, with all the pockmarks. Uh -huh. And I also, I really appreciate the um, kind of, it's kind of a slightly skewed version of Beethoven's Fifth. I, I don't know if you kind of picked that up, but the, the musical soundtrack is, it is, it's pretty much like uh, Beethoven's uh, Fifth Symphony there. Da -da -da -da, da -da -da -da. <laughs> With a, you know, How with did a, with I miss a, that now? It, well, it's it's definitely there. There are some very interesting sonic things going on here. So I just wanted to kind of emphasize and that's at the that beginning. Opening. That's at the very beginning. Yeah. Well, definitely then we're, we're going to throw it in right here. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. that put, listeners know put, what put we're talking about. On. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I'll let you go ahead and get out of the summary there and go for it. Yeah, so we zoom in on, on one of these individuals, and it really does, 
the the effect is that we're you know this whole city is filled with these kinds of individuals and we're just happening upon this one woman her name is Fusako and she is played by Kinuyo Tanaka whom we've talked about before um and whom I particularly came to to love in in the um uh oh shoot what's his name Life of Aharu or or no the 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 eclipse set that um Oh, that that I came to particularly love in the Kenosha, oh, the Kenosha clip yeah, set. Definitely. Yeah, she's just phenomenal in that. So I was very thrilled to see her, and she does a great job in this as well. Um, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about her, but but she plays Fusoku or uh, Fusaku, and um, it's after the war. She's really struggling. She has a young child who's sick with tuberculosis, and her husband hasn't come home yet. She doesn't know where he is or what's going on. Uh, not only that, but the war itself has separated her from her own parents and, and sister, and she doesn't know where they are, and she's had to move, so she has no idea if they're ever going to find her. I mean, it, it, it's it's a terrifying um, thing to contemplate and to realize that so many people lived through this kind of situation because of the war, just absolute existential um, crisis where they are left all alone all of a sudden, and that's where she finds herself really struggling to make ends meet, um, both because she needs to take care of her son, but, you know, he's sick, so there's even more desperation there. And then just the emotional um, strain of of not having the family around. But she does have um, acquaintances. Uh, her her brother-in-law is there and he does his, you know he he does his token best to to try to to help her but it really isn't enough and so as the you know w- w- this is one of Mizuguchi's tales of fallen women um w- you definitely get a good sense as to where this is going to go uh but we do have some um interesting twists and turns as as we explore how Fusaku um, falls essentially in 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 these uh, conventional morals that that she has to to adopt um, it, or she has to 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 kind of go against her conventional morals in order to just survive and it's it's a pretty terrifying uh, look at uh, at these terrible choices because it's not something she wants to do uh, early in the film she's trying to sell some things and getting just uh, pennies for it. And one of the buyers is a woman who says, hey, you know what, I know some men who might help you make some easy money. And Fusaku, at that point, wants nothing of it, is ashamed that uh, it would even be a consideration, just won't won't hear of it, it's, things are not that bad. But, you know, they, they get that bad, and this is a, a tale about her, but not just uh, Fusaku. Um, we do finally, in a... In a one of these coincidences that I think, as you mentioned in your in your review, David, um, things that did happen after the war. You know, she runs into her sister one day. That she, they've they've both been trying to find each other, and and she runs into her sister, who's quite a different person from Fusaku. Um, but we also, and her name is not Suko, and we watch her also in her own um, her own life and descent, along with um, with a, an, an acquaintance that they have named Kumiko. Uh, so we have three women here, and I think center stage is Fusako with, uh, you know, Kinuyo Tanaka's uh, character. But the other two are, are are very important as well because they're people that um, Fusako loves and, and wants to help. And there's just, there's really, you know, it seems like there's nothing to be done for these for these women. Yeah, they're, they're kind of a cross-section of sort of three types, if you will, uh, you know, of Japanese women. Uh, women who were not necessarily born or sold into the geisha trade, as we uh, as we saw in those two earlier films. But these are women. Just you know, one of them is married, the other two a bit younger. But you know, in a normal life and times, a normal society, they would have had other options before them. Uh, Scott, let's get you in on the conversation. What are some of your thoughts about uh, women of the night? Um, yeah, I mean, I think the relationship with the sisters is really. Uh, important and quite powerful, especially coming off Sisters of Gion. I was pleased to say, see Mizuguchi take up this sort of relationship again. And I think more personal terms, you know, Sisters of the Gion, they kind of stake out very ideological positions and stick with them through the entire run of the film. And that has its own charge, I think. And the way they kind of come together in the end is more out of a sense of mutual loss than anything, which I guess plays 
its own role in Women of the Night as well. But the sisters here, I think, are slightly more dynamic characters. Uh, their small reunion at the beginning is uh, quite touching as is their eventual falling out. And kind of every time they come back together, there's a sense in which they're trying to protect one another, both from uh, the life that they've fallen into and protecting the other sister from falling into the same fate and protecting the other sister from knowing that of the fate they've fallen into, you know, there's a sort of pride that I found uh, drives them at various points that I found very relatable. And, you know, Mizuguchi's characters are sometimes more a reflection of theme. And I think his women have been knocked before for, you know, kind of playing overly sacrificial roles, which as we talked about in the uh, story of the last chrysanthemums episode, uh, definitely has a, point and it's a very pointed reason why he takes that tack and so seeing him take on these more dynamic female characters shows that you know he wasn't just a pure misogynist who thought that women didn't have these other layers to them he just was telling different types of stories at different times Uh, and women of the night is very situated in the female perspective you know there's not very many kind of prominent male characters in which male characters they are definitely not of the more admirable sort. Um, so yeah, I mean, in spite of the way I kind of characterized the film overall at the beginning, I, I think it is effective for all the reasons you noted, you know, as a post-war work, it's kind of more immediate and angering than, you know, even the Italian neorealism stuff that was coming out, you know, there wasn't something as kind of striking as I think the final scene in this film, which is completely devastating and heartbreaking and i wish i'd kind of known about it before i'd gotten into watching this on a quiet sunday afternoon but otherwise uh (laughs) yeah it's it's pretty harrowing stuff and i think that really comes back to the fact that the two women are so well defined and strongly uh situated before you know any sort of terrible fate befalls them yeah well let's pick up on that uh, neo-realism thought here this was a film like you say of 1948 it was actually released before bicycle thieves and of course <laughs> neo-realism did not begin with bicycle thieves but uh, uh rossellini's uh you know, two-thirds of his war trilogy had been released uh rome open city and paisan had been released and some of the other uh, you know italian neo-realist works and there's definitely a, a neo-realist uh, tinge here uh, which I think fairly indicates that Mizuguchi was very uh, conscious of what was happening in in world cinema, in European cinema in particular, and was presumably influenced by it. Uh, you see definitely uh, some of these outside uh, cityscapes, uh, even though the actors all seem to be pretty much on the professional side, the, the settings, and again, just kind of that unvarnished, uh, you know, out-of-the-studio um uh, ambiance is, is very very present here you know not not that the uh, earlier films were necessarily studio bound but there's just a very immediate quality to the storytelling techniques and and the narratives and the situations of the people this is very much uh the life of working class hard pressed uh, and and somewhat impoverished uh locals uh and uh just getting through whatever life has handed them uh not necessarily with a you know with a cheerful redemptive uh you know optimistic quality at all in fact there's there's a lot of suffering and there's a lot of displacement uh people being shuttled from one you know dwelling place to another uh very little sense of permanence uh really no sense of direction it's really just a survival game and that's what you see taking place as the story unfolds I mean, I, I kind of mentioned that I think in some ways this eclipses a lot of the anger you saw out of Italy. You mentioned the War Trilogy reminds me, of course, of yeah, Rome Open City is probably the exception to that uh, unvarnished uh, uh, rule that I just concocted off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, I, I think that sort of uh, post-war displacement is right exactly what I was going for, um, especially when you get to kind of yeah i can't remember was it a hospital they were staying yeah there's that kind of hospital that's just lined with women who are kind of for, forced to be tested it's a very uh striking image in a film that isn't you know less than so than other Gucci films i don't think this film really prizes composition or lighting in the same way they're very fine compositions very fine lighting but i don't didn't find as many images kind of sticking with me in the same way but that just space of the hospital filled end to end with these women who are desperate to get out but who might be, you know, dying even as they sit there. It's, I mean, 
that alone, it, you could practice that whole movie there. And for a 75 minute movie to pack in something that kind of striking is really remarkable. Well, you think about where the society was at. I mean, you know, Japan had been a pretty patriarchal society, but just the sheer numbers, how many men had been killed or disabled, the uh, the traditional way of life and the authority, the government system had really been been disrupted. So now you have you know, hordes of women, if you will, a very large number of women who just, they themselves, they, they don't have the traditional households to maintain. Uh, even even the uh, the pleasure palaces, the geisha, you know, um, parlors or whatever they're called, you know, they're not really functioning in the same way. And, and, and the, the prostitution that's going on here is certainly not of the refined uh, cultivated variety as exploitive as that was this is just a very very rough very raw uh, trade in in flesh and and uh, you know there's other kind of criminality going on there's some opium smuggling uh, even uh, legitimate businessmen are running kind of black market side jobs so you you do you do get a sense of kind of the the anarchy uh, that that's really still yeah, you know, kind of setting the tone and 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 uh, you know, opening up all these taboos, and so uh, women are being corralled. In fact, there's kind of an ominous sign right at the beginning. You know, women should not be out after dark. If they are, they're subject to arrest. And of course, that is a pretty clear foreshadowing of of some critical scenes that happen later on. And that's where that's where these women are kind of corralled into these reform schools and hospital settings. I, I like how that sign says respectable women should not be outside after dark. Like, you know, it says they'll be re- they'll be arrested, but then it's even putting respectable women in in a in their place. You know, we you, you just if you're respectable, don't do it. You know, there there's a, a nice fence that they're putting up there for basically everybody. Um, they're just going to arrest you for for sure. And, you know, you mentioned earlier that the occupation isn't really touched on, and it isn't, but um, it does definitely open up questions for how much did the American occupation um, help to uh, make this kind of prostitution uh, just uh, proliferate in these areas um, and basically give give these these women that, that avenue, how much of it was them, uh, you know, Americans who were who were the buyers here and it doesn't it doesn't get into that but um interesting stuff to to th- think about too yeah i mean i think for contemporary for audiences at the time that uh lair is unavoidable and they would certainly know the role that americans had played in putting japan in this position and in continuing their exploitation well, and, and once again you know I'll, i start out a little bit negative but after the discussion there, there's so much positive <laughs> I, I really don't have anything negative to be like well but look at this um you know so so my own reaction is is I, maybe still the film has its um its problems but you know, listeners can can tell that there's there's so much that's important here that's being touched on, and and worth unpacking. And I wouldn't mind touching on the anger that that Scott was talking about earlier, um, and maybe uh, unpacking that just a little bit more, and and maybe some of the issues that uh, come out because of the, of that anger that um, maybe don't do women any favors. Um, did, did either of you have any thoughts on, on the anger and how Mizuguchi kind of uh, unleashes it? Well, we talked about at the end of Sisters of the Geo and how it kind of ends on a very didactic note of saying, why why must there even be geishas? And it just kind of sums up the whole movie for you in a neat little package. And I think this movie does that as well, but without kind of saying it out loud. Although I, I think it's dramatic modes of making the same point are perhaps just as obvious. And if there are you know, kind of overt, overt flaws in the film. You know, whatever reservations I have about the film aren't due necessarily to any overt flaws that I noticed, less, but more to do with, uh, I guess, not as refined an inspiration or refined a form as you see in some of Mizuguchi's masterpieces. But I, I think by the end, where you have these women literally tearing themselves to pieces on the street, you know, the same sort of anger that informs the sisters of the Gijon is equally at play here just in a slightly different form and uh the women are sort of angry themselves and to a different end that mizuguchi is but i think they're 
at the same way vessels for his anger. Yeah, I think there is a scene where Pisako says, women like us must never exist again, you know, and so there is that sort of call for social reform and, and we can do better and let's all strive as a society to avoid ever allowing these circumstances to duplicate themselves. So so that, that message is there, but it is delivered with such a lack of restraint and with Mizuguchi you know we he's you know very justifiably celebrated for all of his formal discipline you know the elaborate tracking shots the uh, you know the staging and there are a few of those moments there are some of those you know Mizuguchi signature shots there but he's certainly not as ostentatious with it it does seem like he's more interested in just getting this story you know hot off the presses and and delivered with a with a you know pretty much an in your face immediacy, uh, so that we're really tuning into the pathos of the characters rather than the sublime uh, artistry. Uh, and so you know perhaps later on in his career, after he had you know moved on to other things and looked back on this particularly you know vitriolic outburst, maybe it did kind of rub against his his uh, more, more refined aesthetics but I, I i i appreciate sort of the the uh you know the garage feel of all of this that he is really just you know getting his camera out there on these rubble strewn streets he's allowing women uh female characters of, of of great complexity to go through some some very significant uh dramatic changes but i think they're very plausible i mean uh, Fusako is just a, an aspiring mother who just wants to get her life back together. But you know, when she does make her fall, when when she learns that her husband has died, and that there's just really not much hope for her. I mean, everything's been snatched away. She becomes a a pretty hardened, bitter woman, and uh, it's 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 a it's a pretty stunning transformation, shocking and and also very sad, just because. You know, there's that ring of truth to it that there were probably, you know, tens of thousands, if not millions of women who uh, faced very similar circumstances. And and perhaps they didn't all go this way, but you just you sort of just recognize the intense pressures that all of these women had to had to work through and uh, and the eruption of emotions and and just kind of psychic meltdown that that come through it all as as everybody is just basically intent on exploiting everybody else uh to eke out whatever advantage uh they can have in the moment uh, how about the religious symbolism too i mean the, the last <laughs> scene kind of seems to take place in kind of a bombed out church uh kind of reminded me of uh uh oh what's that one uh, the um oh the, about the drummer the the the, the, the uh uh Kurahara film, what a black sun, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember that yeah. one, Trevor? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you know, a little apocalyptic scenario there, uh, as uh, as these women are kind of shredding each other underneath the, you know, the Virgin uh, Mary stained glass of the Virgin Mary. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that Mizuguchi had any kind of uh, Christian perspective necessarily, but he certainly saw the power of the iconography and and this, uh, you know, this. Uh, feminine ideal uh, kind of watching over this disgraceful scene well and it, it maybe again brings in the western influence a little bit more than we'd seen directly earlier you know here's here's this um western icon here's a virgin mary and yet how much of of it has been caused by people who purport to you know or aspire to some kind of ideal like that um you know I, i'd be very curious to know how much you know some of the response of the time and how the film did relate to th- what was going on with the the occupation um how it was received because i i think it, it it's hard to look back at it now even and I, i'm sure for the as scott said for the japanese audience at the time to ignore all of that and to ignore that um that uh, fusaku is kind of you know her, her traditional in her dress but her sister is is very westernized and and how all that kind of uh, plays out it's uh it's there well it's it's just an interesting thing i i don't have much more to say about the icon than it does stand out and and i think to be honest it's probably one of the moments where i was like okay come on but um maybe for maybe <laughs> for a japanese audience at the time who's a little less familiar with it 
it wouldn't have been quite so bludgeoning um, of a, you know, here's here's the woman, you know, the ideal woman uh, in a way. And, and for some people, and look what's going on right underneath uh, this ground that's uh, sanctified for her. You know, these women are tearing each other apart because um, they need... They need the work. They need the clients. They need, they need to eliminate competition. They need to, um, basically try to to be the the last man standing or the last woman standing um, in order to survive the next day. Yeah, um, Scott, you have any final thoughts on this one before we move on to uh, Street of Shame? Uh, not terribly. I guess just follow up on a couple of points you guys raised uh, in terms of the, kind of the elaborate tracking shots that he employs. It, just thinking on it now, it kind of reminded me of Children of Men, actually, which also has kind of elaborate tracking shots through an apocalyptic uh, wasteland where the interactions between people take on different meanings as the shot develops, you know, especially when uh, the two sisters find themselves amidst the uh, raid of the prostitutes. It's a very kind of striking evolution. And then as far as the religious symbolism goes, I wonder if that might also be its own kind of Western critique that's a little bit more placed in a, an acceptable form where, you know, some audiences could read it as analogous to biblical stories and other audiences could read it as an example of uh, Christian domination. Yeah, I, th- yeah. I think those were all pretty valid observations. Yeah. And, and one last thing I'll, I'll throw in there is uh, whether you've watched it uh, you know, multiple times or this is uh, first time through, keep your ears open for the sound of train whistles. Um, Mizuguchi uses this kind of sonic motif and i'm not exactly sure where it comes from but in my most recent rewatch i just noticed that there were the sounds of train whistles although they weren't always by train stations but you'd hear like this rumbling and then kind of a <laughs> kind of a sound effect when certain critical events took place like when uh, fisako escapes from the the, the prison uh, or the kind of the reform school hospital setting whatever it was that she was in kind of a secure compound with barbed wire but there there are numerous points uh, that are kind of punctuation marks and that's something i might want to i mean i just noticed it and i want to might want to re re-examine it one more time so i'll just throw that out there as a as a little uh, motif for uh, uh, viewers to to keep an ear open for and, and see what they make of all that uh, so with that, let's talk about Street of Shame. This was a film that was actually Mizuguchi's, uh, very unfortunately, his final film. Uh, he was only 58 years old when he passed on. Uh, he died from leukemia. And uh, this was a 1955 film. Uh, I'm not sure that when he went into it, he was expecting that this would be his final statement, similar to Ozu's Autumn Afternoon. Uh, but they do sort of have that hallmark of his, you know, final testament, if you will. Street of Shame was a film that, uh, again, dealt with the uh, the uh, topic of prostitution, of women sort of uh, in various reasons and circumstances forced to sell themselves uh, as a mode of economic survival and the implications and, and uh, you know, the downside of, of that, uh, you know, very, very difficult uh, choices that, that uh, women you know, too often had to make in that society. Uh, it's a bit of an ensemble drama. There's there's five women, uh, each of whom have their own sort of narrative through line. Uh, the, the standout uh, performance and presence is Michiko Kyo. Uh, she was in Rashomon. Uh, what was the other film that she was in? Oh, she was in uh, uh, Ugetsu. Uh, she played a very striking role as the kind of the spectral ghost woman in that story. And uh, here she's kind of showing off a whole other side of herself uh, uh, as Mickey, uh, uh, an extremely westernized, uh, somewhat delinquent girl. Uh, I think she was probably a little bit older in real life than the character she was portraying. Uh, But this is a story that really talks about uh, life in Tokyo's red light district, and that's literally how the title translates as red light district. Uh, So Street of Shame was probably one of those Americanized uh, tags that was put on the movie as a way of sort of, you know, implying the moral of the story and and perhaps a, a little bit of a titillating invitation to the audience to, uh, you know, to see this uh, the scandalous goings on in a in, in a Japanese uh, whorehouse. Uh, the the place is called Dreamland. It's a, it's where the women have uh, come together. 
it's certainly not a geisha house. It's it's uh, more of a brothel. Um, it's part of a district. Was it the Yoshiwara? Is that is that what it was called? Uh, a part of Tokyo that was um, kind of consigned to good times. I mean, it would be kind of like a casino district in a, a modern American city, uh, except you you could uh, at that time legally walk in put your money down and expect to have sex with a woman without any kind of interference from the legal authorities. Um, Because of uh, both internal and perhaps some external pressures, Japanese society was really grappling with what had been in different ways a very historic practice of of allowing, um, you know, men to... You know, gratify themselves by just uh, you know having uh, illegal access to prostitution, and uh, the society wondered if that was really a legitimate business enterprise that should be allowed. And uh, Mizuguchi, who you know, as we talked about in our last episode, and is pretty well known, you know, his sister was was put up for adoption, eventually sold into a geisha house uh, when he was a young man, well before he got into the film industry. Uh, but that trauma. Um, it really informed so much of his later career and his artistic sensibilities. Uh, so, yeah, so this film is is definitely the most, uh, you know, pristine image-wise and technically. Uh, it's not quite up to high-def standards, but it probably would make a pretty decent-looking Blu-ray, whereas the other films we've talked about would probably need a lot more restoration and maybe access to some original uh, source materials before it would really stand up to the HD upgrade. Uh, but yeah, who, who wants to talk about Street of Shame? I mean, I, I found this to be a very, um, you know, it's a very engaging film just because you do have, you know, five different stories and pretty vivid characterizations. Uh, who wants to pick it up from there? Yeah, I do have the film on Blu-ray first okay. off from uh, the Masters of Cinema, and it does look very good. So it could certainly, if Criterion were ever to upgrade their Eclipse sets, they certainly could do that with this one. Um, but as for the film itself, uh, it should also be known that Mizuguchi was also a frequent, uh, uh, he frequented some brothels himself. He <laughs> went to geisha houses and prostitutes. So he had it both uh, ways, so he, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just was so much a part of the social dimension of being a man of his age in the time in which he lived that avoiding it entirely probably would have meant sacrificing innumerable professional opportunities along the way that, similar to how one goes out for a drink with the boss or maybe plays golf with the boss now, uh, you know, going to a prostitute in Japan at this time was just what one did in a social dimension. He was kind of researching um, material for his films, you could say. <laughs> uh, sure. I'm, I'm sure that's the way he phrased it to any concerned uh, onlookers. But uh, I think it did pay off in a certain way. He certainly understands, I think, uh, the social dimension of the brothel here. You know, there's... That ambivalence I mentioned up front is just portrayed in the very way the women approach their jobs, you know, which is, uh, you know, like any other terrible job that poor people have to do to get by. They're kind of accepting of the indignities foisted upon them uh, and can sort of put on a good face when they need to as part of their job requires, you know, socializing with the men and putting on a happy spirit and even walking out on the street and trying to uh, seduce in a few customers amidst the other competing brothels and i think uh the different characterizations kind of highlight that you know he probably heightens them in some regards and heightens their dramatic arcs so that there can be a way to move the film along you know there's some women who there's woman in fact who goes insane throughout the course of the film and uh that probably wasn't you know kind of the everyday portrait of a brothel house but i think in the smaller interactions he really gets at a very realistic sense of how the women in these environments relate to one another, how they relate to the men, how the men relate to them, and the plays they make for the women's affections and the jealousies that crop up amongst the women, not necessarily personal, but more professionally aimed, you know, certainly with the entrance of the younger and flashier Mickey, who all the men want to now sleep with, uh, going after, I think one man directly compares them to fruit, uh, which kind of says a lot about the consumer attitude they took to the, towards the women but uh yeah I'm, i think i'm most impressed with also just how funny the film can be at times you know there's kind of these mundane interactions about uh clothing or uh, about um the money required to kind of put on a flashy uh attire and garb and he 
injects enough humor in there that by the time the more tragic elements take their hold, it's not doesn't feel like pure miserabilism. You know, it feels like the tragedy is a natural extension of the life that these women lead in the same way that their humor would be. And so that in some way makes the tragedy hit all the harder because it does feel more real. So, yeah, I mean, I don't, again, I don't think this is like top of what I love about Mizuguchi, but I think it's like his most uh, accomplished sort of classically trained film. It's like him making a very regular film and it was a huge hit at the time and he does a very good job of it. Yeah, and I do appreciate that that contrast as much as again as I enjoy Yugetsu, Sancho, etc. There's not a lot of humor in those films. They're they're all they're pretty ponderous, uh, and I don't say ponderous as a negative because I mean that sometimes that heaviness and that you know just that awesome gravity is is I mean to be able to execute and sustain that that you know, that, that potency over the course of a two plus hour film is a, that, that's not an easy thing to do and to do it successfully. So, but this is just a, a contrast. This is, I, I think, an evidence of Mizuguchi's mastery of, of a lot of different uh, aspects of, of great filmmaking. And I agree. I, I think the, the sauciness of it all and the kind of, uh, you know, Mickey's sassiness, the Asumi's savvy with the, with the money and and the way she kind of strings her man along and and is you know she's definitely a very mercenary character and you certainly don't want to be on the receiving end of of uh, of her wiles but <laughs> as an objective sort of detached spectator it's like wow you go girl it's pretty it's pretty uh, incredible to see how she you know has has kind of sized up her situation and decided to take the full advantage of it the other women a little bit more of the mundane working class, uh, maybe not as charismatic in in their yeah, and the way they flourish their different abilities because they are just hard pressed, ordinary women in a very unfortunate circumstance. But your heart goes out to them, uh, and then and then the men themselves, uh, you know, kind of bumbling buffoons in many senses, are are a bit of comic relief. Uh, but as a guy, you sort of you recognize sort of the male psychology going on there and. I think most of us can at least identify with it, even if we don't uh, frequent such establishments ourselves. It's a, it's an interesting film af- in this set after I've seen three movies that are pretty negative, you know, about prostitution, to have this one almost make a case for for it. <laughs> it, it sort of normalizes it. Yeah. As sort of a, it, It's kind of like, you know, the shop talk. It's kind of like... Uh, Taxi or Cheers or something. It's like, yeah, well, life at the prop. Well, but they, and they make, they actually make arguments for for why for these individual women, it, it it might still be a necessity, and that's a you know. And to take it away is to really deprive it, them it of is. something. Like, what else are they going to do? Yeah, right? the, there's nothing in place for these women if you take it away. At least, at least they don't see it. Yeah, maybe there is, and they they made it illegal, and obviously it didn't stop it. I'm sure, but um, but uh. For these women, you know, one of at the beginning, they're kind of having a political discussion and, oh, yeah, we should definitely outlaw this. And one of them's like, well, that's easy for you to say. You have, you know, uh, I can't remember what she says, but something like a husband who has a good job and et et cetera. Um, But for for the women who are in this position, you know, this is this is their way of advancing. And a few of them see it that way. They don't they're not looking at this as just a way to make ends meet anymore it still does that but they they might actually be able to to get beyond this and start another life and for others it really is the only way that they have that, that they can find that um gets them their daily bread and them and their family because you know um the uh, i can't remember her name um hanai i think it was hanai she's you know she's married and has a baby and and she's in this because her husband is unemployed um, one of the few men in the film who who doesn't look like he's doing fairly well. I thought that was also interesting that most of the poverty that we see in this one, which isn't the case in in Women of the Night, but in this one, is that the men look like they're going to do fine. You know, they look like they've um, gotten over the slump after the war. The economic um, environment has changed, and they're doing quite well for themselves, but it hasn't been enough to pick up these women and to help them. And so... You know, there, there's an interesting case being made here for these particular women that you, you take this away from us, 
and you, you take away a viable economic option that may be linked to our very survival. Um, an interesting way to end the set and a career <laughs> that uh, tends to be known for seeing things the other way. Um, and I wonder if, if the, you know, we talked about Mizuguchi maybe having it a little bit both ways, that this film doesn't do that as well. And um, because of that, I was also quite interested that uh, some say that it was, you know, what what really kind of uh, moved the argument to, to make prostitution illegal um, out of the argument sphere and into reality when I actually thought this one is a little bit more of not an argument against or for prostitution, but at least an argument for temperance. You know, we, we can't take away, you know, maybe, maybe it'll be good in the long run, but for these women there tomorrow, we are taking it away from them. And, Yet, you know, a few months later, it became illegal, and some people are saying this is the movie that did it. I, I, I didn't make that jump um, yet. Well, I think I think as a a, a well-handled social controversy statement film, it does a good job of opening up the conversation yeah. rather than saying, yeah. here's the solution. It, it does kind of stimulate uh, the discussion and... and you know, proponents of both sides of the issue can probably find aspects that support their cause or at least say, well, they present the issues, you know, fairly or somewhat objectively. I, I'm not sure if it was Hanai, the character you mentioned or not, but one of the women who goes, she leaves and actually goes to her husband and then finds out that it's just another form of servitude and she actually ends up coming mm -hmm. back because... Yeah. This is a zone where she's at least got a little bit more autonomy and is a little bit more empowered to be the person she, you know, believes herself to be in, in that setting more than in the traditional sort of, you know, domesticated, you know, family situation. So, yeah, I mean, you know, in, in some ways, life and circumstances, experience have really shaped these women uh, in a certain way. And now you are depriving them of a of of. Uh, of a known way of life and, and not just them, but their customers. And so, yeah, that, that is a part of the dilemma that, uh, that Mizuguchi is capturing here. Yeah. I mean, I think it's less like an advocation for than just that sort of ambivalence that I mentioned at the front, you know, unlike those earlier films, which tell you very directly what to think of prostitution and what to think of what these women are forced to do and how they're forced to live. Uh, this just says, okay, this is how it is. This is what the women do day to day. This is how they need to make a living. This is in some ways their only option. You know, can we live with this? And I think by asking that question and by leaving it so open-ended and there are so many plot threads that are completely left unresolved and purposely so, I think it leaves the audience up to kind of imagine the rest. And it's it's easy for me to see why this would be kind of the galvanizing force because it uh, lets the audience make that jump one way or the other. And I, I think they could have just as easily made the jump the other way, but it seemed to awaken something that was already kind of situated in the national conscience. Yeah. And I think the fact is this, this is just a very, it's a peculiar institution. It was kind of a, of a, kind of a, a warped or a degraded, um, version of of the geisha tradition and there's another statement well you know traditional geisha would know flower arrangement and calligraphy and tea serving and <laughs> they really don't do any of that they, they may still have nice kimonos and there may be some artwork on the walls but this is basically just a sex house you know that that's basically what it comes down to you know give me a massage you know let's jump in the the, the bathtub together but then there's no there's no artistry. It's not nearly as refined or as cultivated. Uh, the basic transaction has become a lot more crass, a lot more commercial. Uh, they're corralling men off the street. You know, uh, it's very competitive kind of uh, cutthroat business. Uh, whereas the the older tradition, you had your patrons, and it was a little bit more, at least on the surface of things, uh, a little bit more dignified, and it had a little bit more deeper roots in in the. Uh, you know, the higher aspects of Japanese culture, uh, like many other, <laughs> uh, 
human activities that are touched by you know capitalism and and uh, the for-profit ventures uh, there's just a certain crudeness that takes over when it just becomes all about the money <laughs> and uh, i think that's another reason that maybe japanese society said you know what uh, if this is the direction our economy is moving if we're becoming more of a you know globally integrated uh, into the you know into the community of nations uh we we have to you know become a little bit more mainstream and uh, we don't see other countries doing this type of thing or allowing this kind of enterprise just to go unchecked or at least not in the, the completely legal sense that it had been up until this point so you know with prohibition and with uh you know uh, criminalization of certain activities there are other problems that come with it and it never completely goes away but uh street of shame as it's titled uh, you know that street was uh, fairly soon after put out of business uh any any other aspects of the film i mean this is one that seems a little bit more simple in its in its treatment and and uh, it is it's a you know it's, it's got some some very attractive scenes uh, again there are some you know nice trademark mizuguchi touches with the, with the long takes with the elaborate camera movements and all of that but uh wondering if anybody has other thoughts or uh this is maybe a good time to start summarizing our views on the set as a whole uh i just wanted to mention that women of the night was kind of shot on location which was very unusual i think for japanese cinema and would become increasingly unusual as uh, the next decade wore on but this uh street of shame was shot on a set even though mizuguchi wanted to shoot in the actual red light district apparently the Local geisha owners, knowing uh, that the anti-prostitution legislation was kind of forever looming, they didn't want the attention that a film production might bring. And so he took this to a set. And I, th I think on the whole, his cinema kind of benefits for it. The lighting is much more ornate and kind of uh, attractive to look at. And even though this isn't, you know, his most, uh, I guess, ostentatious turn behind the camera he gets in some very clever shots i really like that shot of uh, mickey kind of dancing in the clamshell and the guy kind of looking in on her yes. and then he she tries to pull him in he kind of runs away but then in the very corner of the shot you can still see him peeking around a corner <laughs> watching her dance mm -hmm. uh which is a very subtle touch in a director that was not necessarily known for his visual subtlety uh but yeah so this the film has a lot of uh very amusing touches like that I don't have any final uh, thoughts. Good to go. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's fine. I think we've we've pretty much spoken our piece then. But yeah, yeah. Mizuguchi again, one of those big names of of Japanese cinema. Um, I think this is a this is a pretty critically important set, just because Mizuguchi's films, you know, obviously with with Last Chrysanthemum coming out, with uh, hopefully a few of his other major works of the later 40s, uh, early 50s, and, and then uh, 47 Ronin, I, I did mention the other night, uh, that I'd like to see that one issued as a standalone edition, uh, get it off of the streaming format with the supplemental materials at some point. Uh, we'll see. Um, you know, what we, you know, I, I remember it was a couple months ago I was on the uh, FlixWise podcast, we were talking about Ugetsu, and I think, you know, one of the reasons maybe that Mizuguchi's, you know, not, as often, you know, rightly uh, ranked up there with Ozu and Kurosawa is that, it, you know, other than, you know, the, the you know, Sancho, Ugetsu, uh, those two films in particular, uh, his his filmography is just very diverse. And, and I, there's a lot of films that I'm aware of the titles that Criterion has not offered up on streaming services yet that I'd still like to see uh, just because I feel like there's just so much more there that is yet to be, you know, fully presented to Western audiences, at least in the friendly take-home editions. Uh, but I think these these four films give a very nice introduction to the broader range of what Mizuguchi accomplished in his career. Uh, of course, uh, you know, the, the earlier parts of his of his uh, of his uh, works are are pretty much lost, and uh, you know, we don't have access to them anymore. But uh, I, I do, I do feel this is one of the, you know, the, the more outstanding Eclipse series sets, and one that I hope people uh, will check out uh, if they haven't yet. Yeah, I guess I would just say that it opened up new avenues to Mizuguchi that I hadn't really seen before, and was really exciting in that way. Um, 
you know, I think with the Eclipse sets, one expects to come across few complete masterpieces, and I think that's kind of by design, and that's fine. And but I think this set kind of does what I look to the series for, which is these kind of nooks and crannies of auteurs that we might not see otherwise, or in some cases, just looking at auteurs at all that we might not see otherwise. I think in this case, this is definitely the former. And uh, for the, that reason, you know, I, I don't have nearly enough Eclipse sets to say where this kind of stacks as far as the most essential releases, but I do think it's a very important entry that I hope people are checking out. Well, the more Eclipse series that we get through, um, the more essential ones I see and, <laughs> and they don't, and they're yeah. still in the, in, you know, not ranked in like even a top 10 if I were to sit down and rank them, which I do, um, which is a, a dumb exercise in many ways. But uh, <laughs> but um, but I'm kind of with, with Scott on this one. It, it opened up things for me as well. I'm not very familiar with Mizuguchi. Be- before I watched this set, I had only seen the three that were available on Criterion Blu-ray up, up until the story of The Last Chrysanthemums came out, which was, I guess, actually, um, Ugetsu still isn't on Blu-ray, is it? But I have the DVD. So um, Ugetsu, Sancho, and Life of Oharo. And, you know, I, I, I do prefer those. Um, they are just kind of luscious, much longer um, pieces with quite a bit of beauty and, and um, you know, elements of mysticism and things that uh, that uh, maybe go a little bit farther for me. But I've really enjoyed this discussion to understand more about Mizuguchi, other interests that he had, other other ways that he had of, of exploring what was going on, and um, this completely other side of him, of looking at uh, what was going on around him in the actual history up to you know, his final film being about a very current debate in, in Japan at the time. And that was uh, completely eye-opening to me. And so, you know, again, a, a great, great release. Not Definitely not one that I would say, eh, don't worry about it. In fact, it's one that I bought not too long after it came out, but um, it sat on the shelf until now. So it's been a while. Uh, but I'm glad that I that I got it, and I, I wouldn't... Um, I still think it's one that people should pick up sooner than later. Very well said. Okay, well, let's go ahead and wrap up our discussion of Mizuguchi's Fallen Women. Uh, this is October. We're already in the middle of October, or not the middle, but the early stages of October, and we do intend to try to squeeze in discussion of our next uh, Eclipse series set, uh, which is Eclipse series number two, Louis Miles documentaries, or is it the documentaries of Louis Mal? <laughs> however, however they officially title it, it's the big one. It's the big blockbuster uh, Eclipse series two, the biggest set of them all. Uh, I think is what six films, uh, maybe even seven five discs, maybe seven. You're right. There's a there's a, a short mm-hmm. one. Uh, there's a massive one, uh, Phantom India. Uh, yeah, so we're going to be probably splitting that one up into three distinct episodes just because there's so much there. So uh, look forward to that if you're uh, following us on, on this uh, exploration of the Eclipse series. Scott, I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, we talk all the time, so uh, we'll be back at it soon enough, I'm sure. Uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, good to have you with us. Thank you for your, uh, you know, your contributions. And, uh, yeah, anything else you want to say as we sign off? Uh, no, thanks for, so much for having me. Excellent. All right, Trevor. Well, we will be back probably pretty soon. We mm-hmm. have got some ground to catch up here <laughs> as we kind of whittle down those last few Eclipse series sets. Uh, we'll be back with Louis Mel documentaries and a special guest in uh, the days, if not weeks ahead. So thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll talk to you all soon. Let us know what you think about the Eclipse Viewer. You can find us on Twitter at Eclipse Viewer uh, or send us a message on Criterion Cast, our Facebook post or whatever. Let us know what you think of these uh, these films, and we'll be happy to keep the dialogue going with you. But for now, we're signing off, so goodbye. <laughs>